I could not state this <laughs> more definitively is that there are only just choices, right? There's not an answer of like design is going to fix this. What I see the challenge moving forward is our need to be able to articulate and describe the challenges and the, frankly, the trade-offs. There's not a X solves for, <laughs> X solves the equation. From the Harvard Graduate School of Design, this is Future of the American City. I'm Charles Waldheim. We're here with Kate Orff, landscape architect and founding principal of SCAPE. Kate joins us today to discuss her work on the future of the American city. Kate, welcome. Thanks, Charles. Nice to see you. It's nice to see you again. Yeah, I hope you've been well. Um, among other things, uh, since the last time you and I've had a chance to speak on the record, you know, I know that uh, you and your colleagues at SCAPE have been quite busy with work really across the country, uh, working in a number of uh, a number of cities. And among them, I'm particularly interested in the work that you and your colleagues at SCAPE have been doing in the American South. Uh, among them, projects uh, across, you know, Tennessee, Louisiana, Georgia, Florida. Tom Lee Park in Memphis, Tennessee, in particular, strikes me as an interesting place uh, to begin to talk about the, the work uh, of SCAPE. Tell us about that project and how you got started and, and how the, the challenges of the past year have affected it. Yeah, sure. Um, I have to also say that it's been a surprise and a delight to find such a resonance for the scape work and the scape ethos in these diverse contexts. Uh, at a certain moment, uh, you know, we were on the cover of the Pensacola News Journal and it was like, scape visits Florida. <laughs> I was thinking, okay, we're big in Florida. But, you know, in, in all seriousness, we've, we've somehow, I think, found an, an audience for the, the kind of combination of resilience and engagement and, and design and ecologically driven design in diverse contexts, whether it's Jacksonville or Pensacola, Little Rock, Arkansas, Memphis, Atlanta. Um, and so that's been a, a delight. And, you know, to your, your point about this being, you know, a podcast about American cities, it's also I've, I and my colleagues have had the chance to, to visit many American cities and, and learn about them um, and learn their particular challenges and opportunities. So Memphis has really taken a hold of my imagination. I don't think you can be a human and not fall in love with Memphis as a place uh, and just the, the kind of culture, the history, the location on the Mississippi. And uh, so, yeah, so we were really thrilled uh, with Studio Gang to be developing a, essentially a 30 acre park on on the Mississippi shore and on this sort of riverfront. And it's been, it's been a great experience, not only because of the, the mayor and the client and the, the people in Memphis, but it's also just been uh, the story of a park that's kind of in formation. But the second that you begin to look at it, it's so much more than just a park. It really has to do with the future of the city and this big questions of equity and access, the, the questions of the sort of ecology of the Mississippi River relative to our climate being more flashy and more, you know, more intense rainfall and cities and towns along the Mississippi struggling. And uh, so it's, it's pulled together so many of these, these threads and, and a sort of a backstory of that project is that, you know, we had um, won the project, if you will, before 
the Black Lives Matter movement and the project went on a, a hiatus, as many do, you know, on hold for various reasons. And in that interim period, we had the, the murder of George Floyd. There was, you know, the Black Lives Matter movement and protest. And, and we all, you know, as a design team, holistically and a client team sort of took a, a big step back and said, like, have we set the right goals for this project? And so we went back to the drawing board very literally and, you know, started over and, and really began to think about the namesake of the park, which is called Tom Lee Park and, and looking into the history of Tom Lee. So t- tell us, who, who was Tom Lee? So Tom Lee uh, was a hero. He was African-American man who there was a capsized boat in the Mississippi River and he rode out to save them and whisked his own life to save others in very choppy waters. So it was a a kind of a, a hero, what would you call like an everyday hero? So after we came back to the project, it was like with these new eyes. And so we essentially re-looked at the entire plan. We diversified the access. We knitted back, you know, into the edges of the, t- of the city and um, engaged the Astor Gates, the artist in what I would call like a much more holistic look at the whole picture. And so working with Studio Gang and with the Astro Gates, I feel like I was personally at least able to work through. And of course, at Scape, we, you know, kind of um, examined our own practices and so on, but was able to kind of work through what this means as a design, right, as a designer. And how can we literally in the park layout and through working with the Astor to re, uh, you know, reset and and kind of center the legacy of Tom Lee and the park. We're kind of able to, you know, grapple with with some of these challenges in, in a very direct way through the design, the redesign of the park. And, you know, the Kofi Boone and, and others have used this term racialized topography. You know, it's there's a number of journal articles and I'm, you know, been reading those, but that is nowhere more true than in Memphis, <laughs> where you have very well, you know, wealthy people on the tops of the bluffs, and then you have sort of poor African American or disenfranchised or, or, or underserved people in places that have repeat flooding or uh, with no access to parks. So, so I'm pretty excited about Tom Lee, and I'm pretty excited about the way that the park is now no longer just thought of as like a park for downtown, but it's really something that's stretching alongside the riverbanks and like back and into uh, these kind of community access points all along its length. This is in the context of Memphis, which is uh, over 60% uh, black population, a, a majority minority city, if you will, and in some ways representative of the New South broadly, a city that had an important historic role, not only in the river and its economy, but also in the cotton economy and in the enslavement of human beings. So in the story of Tom Lee, we have somebody who, as you say, risked their own life to save 30 people in the context of uh, this 1925 um, capsizing of the of the Norman. Yeah, and Theaster's work is sort of interpreting that. And, and in a way, his work is kind of changing this, you know, understanding of the monument. It's something that's looking very forward. It's looking at uh, participation. It's looking at you know, I, I kind of think about the project that he's doing. It's like, okay, how can we find the Tom Lee in all of us through a sort of a series of, of spaces and a series of engagements and interactions? So it's a sort of a new, uh, very forward-looking you know, take on what is a memorial um, that is trying, is, is sort of capturing that Memphis of the future, I feel like, or looking toward a Memphis of the future. 
You mentioned uh, your partners, you know, your collaborators, Jeannie Gang, Theaster Gates, both of Chicago, notably. Um, you also, of course, have, you know, local collaborators and I'm sure a, a host of people that you're working with. Who in Memphis are you working with that we should be aware of? Well, the champion of the project is really Carol Coletta. And uh, obviously we have a big design team and many, many consultants and so on and the mayor's office and others. You know, I think part of the, the vision of Memphis Riverfront Parks partnership is to create more of a network of parks rather than a series of individual isolated islands. So Tom Lee is a kind of a 30 acre linear stretch that kind of helps you know, advance that concept of, of a network. And in, in a funny way, and it's not like a one-to-one -one relationship, but I do feel like thinking about the interconnectivity of parks and spaces and greenways, et cetera, is, is something that can, obviously we can never undo uh, this incredible legacy of redlining and racism in the built environment, but as much as we can kind of try to create a connective fabric that is accessible, that is at least a step in the right direction. Have you found um, in Memphis that everyone in the city has felt welcome in the city's public spaces? Is there a, a racialized history to which spaces are available or accessible by various populations? Well, yeah. I mean, I think there's been a long history of sort of documentation. I actually am teaching a, a studio right now on the Mississippi River and have a great student group working in Memphis and that you know have learned all about the you know the accessibility to swimming pools and public parks and the maintenance practices of parks in wealthier areas versus poorer areas, et cetera. And so, you know, I do feel like one of the key um, aspects that at least landscape architects are trying to grapple with at this point in time is you know, our own complicity in complicit in, in the sense that, you know, how can you, you know, at a certain moment, Charles, I feel like uh, landscape architects were like totally innocent, like, yeah, it's just nature in the city and it's great. But as, as we've certainly found out and have, you know, been much more conscious of our own history and our, our role in, you know, disenfranchisement and gentrification, I think, that is, is now a, con, a constant risk and, and is something that um, we're all cognizant of. And um, there's not a, it's not a this problem which is like you can solve for X uh, in terms of the, the impacts of gentrification and in a, invested in the landscape. But it's certainly something that we can all look for and lean towards in terms of our thought processes and in terms of what we're designing for and what we're thinking about. In my view, as, as much as, you know, as any landscape architect practicing in the American cities today, you've been at the forefront of making our field more visible, certainly, and through both your work and accomplishments and through publications, the recognition of your work broadly. And it's interesting to hear you pause and reflect on that notion that, well, we're not simply a part of the solution, but in fact, you know, we are embedded in these larger, you know, societal structures. I'm wondering if the the work you're doing across the South, um, you know, you mentioned Louisiana, uh, Georgia, Florida, 
is this a part of a, a strategy? You know, like, is this simply where the projects are? Is this a, a kind of pivot in mm-hmm. your work? Because from my point of view, of course, you were always practicing, you know, nationally, internationally, but, but I'm just struck by the, the concentration, the number of different projects in various cities. Um, I should fully disclose at this point, I'm a native Floridian myself. So the <laughs> idea that you're working in the panhandle in Pensacola, of course, was news there, uh, widely, widely reported. But I wonder, like, thinking about it now from a little bit of distance, is, is this a part of an overall strategy with you and your colleagues at SCAPE? Or how do you find yourself in these communities at this moment in time? Well, I do feel like there was a moment in time where I felt that, I mean, personally, also when my children were young, younger and so on, like just very deeply tied to the New York region. And, you know, I've written essays and, and, and you know, edited books around like what I learned from New York, basically, you know, in a funny way have, have been sort of my first essay in whatever that was, 2004 or something, was on this kind of pairing of Central Park and Jamaica Bay. And I kind of came out in that essay. I'm like, okay, there's not a lot I can learn from Central Park at this moment. There's a lot that I can learn from Jamaica Bay. And and basically ever since I've kind of looked to Jamaica Bay as my kind of personal mother load, if you will, like always sort of going back to it for inspiration and for just understanding, because even within this this salt marsh on the edge of town, if you will, the edge of of New York, there's just so much to be learned from this socio-natural coupled (laughs) kind of ecosystems. And so, you know, but there was a certain moment in time where after, you know, the lessons of Sandy were kind of applied and and we had some, a lot of like sort of built work in the adaptation space that it was very clear that although it's not a one-to-one translation, but so many of these lessons could be brought to bear in, in other contexts. So that combined with the idea of opening an office in New Orleans, which we have this really cool storefront space in the warehouse district and, uh, has, has sort of led that that kind of drive to work in the American South. Many people, of course, having come to know your work in the contexts uh, that are horizontal and thinking about your relationship to the non-human, let's say, the idea of foregrounding the non-human actors in these spaces, and both as agents of um, regeneration and environmental uh, recuperation, but equally as forms of social engagement, right? The idea of, you know, the the non-human species as a place to kind of connect, whether it's through citizen science or with school children or with a range of different uh, audiences. I'm interested in this turn in your work with respect to what you've called the social, right? The, the socio-cultural. And I wonder to what extent you find the differences in these places that you're practicing, the, the cultural nuances, their specific histories, uh, to what extent is that challenging as a context to work? And do you feel, I mean, even beyond your work at SCAPE, thinking about our profession, as you've described it, like, do we have better tools now to be able to engage with uh, citizenry? You know, I mean, our, our fields, as you know, have had such a kind of checkered history of great works, so-called, coming at the expense of uh, populations. And I wonder if, you know, if as you engage with these increasingly, you know, societal challenges, if we're equipped as a profession to address these. We'll never be fully equipped. I guess I would say my harshest critique for landscape architecture would be that we toil endlessly to make pictorial images of gardens that required incredible amounts of invisible labor and tried to make them look effortless. 
And we've done that in our practices and in our, we've awarded those projects. We've also, you know, whether it's in our, our diagrams, which don't include a kind of uh, sense of, you know, who the humanity I keep like with the toward an urban ecology book, I was like, I want humanity on every page. And it's like a funny, broad critique, but you know, even on the cover, I was like, here's what I, you know, it was sort of in every spread. And, and I'm sure that was like different approach, right? It wasn't like, okay, let's go take, let's hire a photographer to take 10 pictures of this one project. It was like, I just want the humanity to jump off the page. And so that is sort of where I've tried to take things. And, and then of course, using these tools, (laughs) which are, you know, tools that frankly get people excited about um, their ability to participate. Like if you spend 10 years and, you know, thousands of labor hours, you know, of people working in dates to make them look sort of pristine, like a natural Glen that has always been there. I applaud that, but I also feel like that leaves the people who we need to engage in the climate crisis now out. And there's no way to either besides this kind of aesthetic of, you know, awe or wonder, I'm trying to push a different aesthetic, which is how do I work? What do I do? How do I get in that landscape? So it is the tools that we've tried to, to put forward are the tools of, you know, revealing the living things in the landscape to you as you move through them. Safari 7, which was like, I can't remember, that was maybe 2000 and six or seven. That was the early, early, early days with Jeanette Kim and Glenn Cummings. Um, um, You know, it was like, okay, let's take people on this crazy subway ride through, through New York city. And like, let's just sort of have this strategy of revealing uh, what is in the immediate environment. So you're not like passively looking out the window, you're sort of moving through a landscape and having that kind of interpreted and, and, and having you understand your own role in the making of that landscape. So Safari 7 to me was like the first active besides the bird safe building design guides, which was really about kind of trying to show designers like, hi, this is our problem <laughs> in terms of bird strike in buildings. This is an architecture challenge. This is a landscape architecture uh, challenge and solution. And here's what we can do to you know, reduce the mass morbidity of uh, neotropical migrants. It's not something that somebody else is doing, it's design. So those were two projects along those two lines of thought that you just brought up that were important for me. And I feel like constantly kind of, I don't know, say building on, but changing and modifying, but trying to pull some of the, you know, the insights from those very, very early days into, into projects that are bigger and more expansive, yeah. I'm interested about your work in Detroit. We've been talking to people here in this series about Detroit and the kind of context of design and planning in Detroit. And I wonder if, um, on the one hand, are are there obvious non-human protagonists in Detroit that I should be aware of motivating (laughs) your work? Or to what extent can you share with us what your experience was of doing work in Detroit in, in the context in which designers and planners have been coming together there past several years? Detroit is, I, I remember Charles sitting on your reviews on the Detroit way, you know, back in Toronto and looking at some of your, your early work. I mean, I just feel like I've learned a lot uh, from Detroit. Also, some of my work in Detroit is hasn't been published. It was more at a strategy level working 
in the mayor's office, you know, on some big picture concepts about how to develop a joint landscape and economic strategy for investing in underserved neighborhoods. And so sort of develop what I would call more of like a prototypical or bigger level strategy in thinking about Detroit. And then addition, in addition, we did some, have some work in Corktown, um, linking neighborhoods, sort of densifying commercial activity in a couple of key, key areas, right? Otherwise it's almost too much to, to, to handle in this sort of so-called shrinking city. Um, but I mean, I guess one thing I've, I've learned from Detroit, which sounds so, so basic, but, but is so important is just this concept of maintenance and safety. And for a while, we spent such a long time, even I was interviewing um, folks in the parks department and the economic department. I was like, so how does it work? You know, what are the vehicles for maintaining? And they were like, there's Mo, there's, you know, (laughs) and it's essentially, you know, four or five things. So I mean, my feeling from, from being on the ground there was just that it's so much about defining what could be called a maintained landscape and making sure that that landscape felt safe and occupiable and that, that it connected these vibrant neighborhoods. And I feel like so much about Detroit has been like glamorizing the vacant lot and the, you know, the kid of parts. And I'm like, uh, kid of parts doesn't really get you so far. And, and that's, again, I may be recentering the social a little bit in the conversation, but I was really sort of like, okay, what is it, what does it mean to maintain a landscape? What does it mean to feel safe? How, you know, what is required and like, how can we begin to kind of piece those, those pieces together? But Detroit, uh, we don't have a built project in, in Detroit. And I'm, desperately sad about that. And I feel like with, you know, like every city, there's millions and millions and millions of dollars being spent on waterfront parks and and other kinds of spaces that even for a small fraction of that, even just like changing and enhancing some of the maintenance practices, while not a glamorous front page park on Landscape Architecture Magazine would be profoundly transformative, so. I'm interested in this notion of engagement, uh, forms of citizen engagement. And I wonder on the one hand, if if you have thoughts of or ha- have had experience with the necessary institution building to support those kinds of engagement. I, I know that, you know, many landscape architects, in addition to the, you know, the evocative rendering, also engage in a variety of forms of event production or programming, let's say, which are meant to kind of stimulate use. And it strikes me as among the successes of your work and, and, and in the work of Skate more broadly, the ability to build, you know, a kind of collective sense of, you know, venue, a collective sense of that's a place to go and to do certain things that are not purely based in consumption. And in a case like Detroit or in a case like Memphis, I, I wonder to what extent you've seen examples or been able to think about the kind of longer term support for those activities? Have you found the kind of local partnerships or the, are the local civil organizations able to sustain that kind of engagement once the designer leaves town? Yeah, I think that that is one of our greatest challenges is that, you know, often if you're an urban designer, architect, landscape architect, your engagement is encompassed by your scope. (laughs) 
right? Like, what is the scope and what is the fee or what is the scope? And often these things have like almost nothing to do with our scope or our fee, but there are things that, you know, that there, maybe that's starting to be the case now and maybe into the future. Cause I do feel like places or clients or cities are, 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 are valuing that uh, more and more. Um, but um, you know, I think like, for example, in the living case of living breakwaters, we set aside a fairly significant chunk of the funding for the project. And we had to you know, fight for this to be the case um, away from the physical infrastructure piece and toward the sustenance of this sort of social infrastructure, the oyster setting, the um, classroom, the floating classroom, and, and, and all the kind of associated social programming. So in that case, we were able to, you know, help set a budget that enables those, you know, those programs and those, you know, kind of very engagement-driven activities to, to, to persist. Um, but in many cases, I would say another general um, kind of strategy or approach has been, you know, not a surprise, but, you know, I use this, like, start with what is there, you know, <laughs> so to start really with understanding who's already an actor or actors who are actors in the landscape and how, you know, what we're trying to do in so many cases is to craft and design a physical design response to essentially an ongoing set of people who are already working in that, in, in that space. So, the Chattahoochee Riverlands, which is a, a big project over about a uh, hundred linear miles in Atlanta that kind of connects Atlanta met metro um, suburban and exurban areas. That was a project that has uh, the Atlanta Region Commission, ARC, the Atlanta Regional Commission. Um, it has Cobb County, Metro Atlanta, uh, has Trust for Public Land um, as part of the kind of core core client group, but then we we had this very vibrant community stakeholder group. And so with many, many meetings with the stakeholders that are kind of already doing so much in that landscape. So in a lot of ways, the physical design was trying to understand what they're doing and help help amplify that or help, whether it's the Audubon or whether it's a uh, creep commission or a neighborhood block group that is looking for access we were essentially trying to one of the things I think has been a, a differentiator or has been a strength of the scape office has been not just to sort of do the engagement and put it on the side but like literally translate that into physical form that reflects uh, the the engagement processes uh, and that and essentially kind of expands the program. Like Brian Davis, who's a, a colleague of, he's now at UVA, he wrote an essay in the scape book called Public Sediment. And uh, it was sort of like scapes projects are always a program for more work, <laughs> right? So it's like the project itself is just somehow enabling more work to happen. So I really liked that phrasing. And, um, you know, so that would be for me a kind of a, a, a dream scenario. And it's so hard to realize that with, you know, capital budgets and maintenance and operations budgets and the kind of mix and whirl of people that make projects happen. Um, that would be a sort of a dream, which is that, you know, the projects themselves are vehicles which encourage and choreograph more work and more investment, more engagement. Do you have a, 
a thought about the extent to which young designers and planners should be pursuing careers in the public sector. So, you know, many landscape architects, their work is leavened, supported, you know, patroned by uh, political leadership. You know, of course, you know, the state of New York has been quite supportive of, of your projects, as has the, the mayor's office in Detroit, et cetera. And I'm struck in our conversation about the role of governance and the role of leadership. And I wonder if you have a recommendations about that. On the one hand, there are there are some who argue that, you know, designers and planners, more of them ought to go into public service, right? They ought to run for elected or appointed office and they should be involved on the public sector side. Um, on the other hand, I, I wonder uh, if based on your experience, like where leadership comes from and the relative literacy of that leadership relative to the kinds of issues that you're advancing in your practice. Well, I am certainly very much interested in that line of thinking and at, at multiple levels in the government, let's be honest. So one, one sort of revelatory moment uh, was uh, we invited in, because uh, I was trying to get, you know, get inside the EPA, like what's going on? So we invited a fairly high up, you know, official in, a, in the Obama administration who was at the EPA into our office to do like just a lunch and learn. And he was like, maps, you know, he looks at art landscape drawings and like, look at all the maps. And I'm like, yeah, yeah. So you must work with maps all the time. And he was like, nope. He's like every, you know, he was like, maybe, you know, every couple of months, someone will pull out a chart or a map. And I'm thinking the Environmental Protection Agency of the United States, a man who I'm like, this man is a brilliant person. Uh, and who I would want to be leading or, you know, being a leader in the EPA was like, hey, look at the maps. And so you just think about the spatial, you know, the lack of the spatial in so much of what we do. And it's it's stunning. So so whether it's you're, you know, a mid-level person at the EPA or you're at um, a coalition nonprofit or um, on a board, you know, I, I do feel like just pulling that spatial imagination into the conversation would be key at whatever level you're team to. You know, I'm not sure, you know, we, we had the spate of uh, transformational mayor architects, right, uh, you know, in the past decades, and maybe there's a new era of the transformational regional uh, administrator slash landscape architect. Uh, that is to come in the decades before us. I certainly hope so, because so much of, you know, I think that's why the, the Chattahoochee is, is Riverlands was also just this like very eye-opening project because it's attempting to operate at the scale of the region. Like truly, it's not just saying we did a map that shows the scale of the region. It is, you, you look at that zoomed out and you see like, six states in the, in the, you know, in the drawing. And, um, and so, you know, I do feel like it is that scale of project, which is one that is, is linking up different kind of forms of territory, which is linking up, you know, through literally a physical, you know, greenway, bikeway, pathway along a forgotten water body or a largely forgotten water body, these are the kinds of scales of projects that certainly we all need to be focused on. Um, and I think what was exciting, um, I was talking to Alexis Landis and Gina Worth, two of my, my partners now, I was like, 
God, remember that time when we heard, I was in a meeting with the, with the mayor's office in Boston when we heard, I got a cell phone call that said we got the Chattahoochee Riverlands and I had to like excuse myself and go bang my head on the wall. So it was like, Gah! my brain is melting from the possibility of uh, designing something or, or working on something at this scale. But it, it certainly is the scale at which one would aspire to work on it relative to the climate crisis and the sort of need to connect people across broad geographies and give you know underserved communities access to the resources that they deserve. Uh, so, yeah. This resonates with you know, the conversation we've had with Maurice Cox in this series in which, you know, the beyond the identity of an architect or a kind of cultural project, the idea of just spatial or geographic literacy. You know, I mean, I think Sean Donovan and the Obama administration reinforced this point about the idea that when we're, we're you know, people make housing decisions, they're making transportation decisions, they're making education, and these things are geolocated and somehow yet our forms of governance don't accommodate that form of knowledge. Are you optimistic or an advocate for the Green New Deal vis-a-vis uh, -vis these topics of the idea of a kind of broader, you know, regional scale impact of design? Well, yes. I mean, as you probably know, I've been working with uh, my center at Columbia, the Center for Resilient Cities and Landscapes, has been working with Billy Fleming at the McCarg Center, and I've been working in the capacity of a board member at the LAF to, to bring this um, Green New Deal super studio <laughs> efforts to bear, which was like, hey, it's in COVID and we need a transformational climate idea and we need to start working together instead of doing 20,000 different things in different directions. Let's just try this very light touch, you know, um, attempt at kind of collaborating and having this discussion across multiple institutions. And it's been, we've been reviewing the work now. Um, and so, I, I participated in the designing the Green New Deal conference that was at Penn, I don't know how many years ago now, a couple of years ago, and really appreciated it. And I saw the need and the difficulty, because uh, Billy and Daniel uh, Aldana Cohen invited me to a breakfast the next day where there are a lot of policymakers at the breakfast who were like, we need people who can iterate and work in these communities to understand how might this, these policy ideas translate on the ground. And, and we need a framework in which that is truly open, right? That these things aren't landing on the ground as if, you know, from Mars. So it's like, it was just seemed like such a clear role for design uh, and the need to have this open iterative process, which I have tried to promulgate in our, our practice that enables a lot of input, if you will, into the system. It's not a closed system. And so, you know, the Green New Deal, you know, to me was this notion of like, we better get some federal legislation on the table very quickly that addresses jobs, justice, decarbonization, and these sort of interlinked challenges. Uh, and so I always felt like, well, the Green New Deal, and of course, you know, it's immediately people start talking about hamburgers and they're taking away my hamburger. You know, it's it, it becomes immediately the spin zone, you know, within the first two minutes. But I'm like, I don't care. Let's just put all of that aside and let's figure out what would be a suite of initiatives and projects that would actually be up to the cause. And so 
I'm not sure if those ideas came out in this, you know, student uh, competition, but but certainly it was a, a great chance to like work together across institutions and, you know, to try to leverage, you know, this goal as abstract as it is to work more as a profession. Of course, we're not all aligned in our politics. We're not all aligned in, but we all have a similar set of skills and knowledge and abilities. So to try to sort of align the, our profession a little bit more directly around, you know, trying to be a partner in achieving these goals. Kate, in the time that we have left, I, I do want to ask you, um, having been the, you know, the first landscape architect to have received the MacArthur Fellowship, this was now four years ago, how has that MacArthur support supported you and your work? Uh, like how has it enabled the kind of work that you've been able to do in the past several years? Yeah, I mean, I really saw, uh, you know, it's it's like you get hit over the head with a, you know, <laughs> it was something when, you, you know, you get a, a call like that. And so I immediately had like a personal crisis. And then I was like, okay, it's just like, you know, encouragement to keep doing what you're doing. So in a way, you know, besides obviously stepping up my board partnership and donor and that, that you know, and sort of kind of trying to contribute more to the network of, of people that are in this sort of skate orbit, um, I really saw it as like, okay, a chance to sort of double down on the method, <laughs> double down on the, um, the expanse and ambition of the practice. And so, so I really tried to free up and, and develop a, a sort of a structure for the practice and for the office that is truly in line with my own ethos of like coaching and sharing and, and teamwork and, and bringing a lot of things together. So I feel like, I feel like the MacArthur has also, you know, if you're, if you're not worried about like, okay, um, how am I going to get from here to there? And how, how can I pay safer college tuition? How can I do all these things? It sort of frees you to make decisions that are building up to, you know, something more substantive. So, um, so I, I, that's really what I feel like the impact has been. And, and I guess the other, the other piece is just the audience for the work. And, you know, maybe what I was doing before was like, oh, she's doing, this very driven by community is very driven by ecology. And in a funny way, I feel like <laughs> it's been dragged to sort of front and center right now into, into, the world of practice. So I feel like that's been um, a really big and positive thing uh, where rather than on the edges, uh, biting around the edges and trying to, you know, <laughs> put more of a, a spotlight on, on that as a, a means of practice and, and something that's uh, potentially very helpful and relevant for our, our future. So Kate, as you reflect on the, the impact of the fellowship and the both, you know, the kind of moral authority of it, the kind of keep doing what you're doing, and you think about your now years and years of practice, I wonder as you see Scape, you and your partners going forward, what are the, what are the challenges that you see with a, a mode of design practice and, and the status of landscape architecture today? Like if you're thinking about, you know, your students or our students, um, thinking about the future of our field, what, what are the challenges that you see in the places where you think we should be focusing our, our time and attention? I would just say <laughs> one is how to state the obvious, but one of the core challenges that I see is that there are no easy <laughs> answers in this world that we are moving into. 
And I think that one of the one of the challenges uh, is, you know, well, first of all, I find it like deeply satisfying as scape and when our office feels like where we're truly in our zone is when we are like partnering with the city, partnering with the mayor's office, partnering with an institution or a nonprofit to like help them achieve some transformative goal. And, and so I feel like that is where I think is our, our sweet spot is this kind of like design partnership. And, you know, where I see a huge risk coming is that, you know, more and more, there are just hard choices, right? So there's no answer, right? And I think the challenge is that in whatever city where you are, <laughs> whatever, you know, whatever, um, whether you're experiencing fire, tor- you know, s- extreme weather, tornadoes, coastal inundation, riverine flooding, you know, these challenges in relative to climate and the built environment uh, will only be more and more magnified and more, more persistent. And I think one of the challenges is that as a profession, right, our, these future clients will be looking to us to like solve it with landscape or with urban design or with architecture or planning, whatever, whatever we're practicing. And I think we are, you know, so I could not state this more definitively is that there are only just choices, right? There's not an answer of like design is going to fix this. There's this kind of solutionism, solutionism around, around design that if you just were to just do these three things, but the, what I see the challenge moving forward is our need to be able to articulate and describe uh, the challenges and the, frankly, the trade-offs that are coming down the road, coming down the, the pipeline uh, to this diverse set of clients. And, and we will need to be able to be partners with our clients to make these very, very difficult choices. There's not an X solves for, <laughs> X solves the equation. There's not, you know, a magic piece that, that jumps out, but we are, you know, always trying to reduce risk. We're trying to bring people and, and, you know, repair, if you will, some of the social fabric where possible, but the questions are getting harder and harder. The climate is getting more and more uh, uh, unforgiving. So we see, I see very difficult choices ahead. Uh, and so, you know, um, one of the, um, at Columbia, I've been on this board, we've been running this managed retreat conference for several years and, you know, having been uh, on that, and I did my recent seminar on, you know, sort of landscapes of resilience and, you know, indigenous populations and places in the world that are being essentially forced to relocate. And, you know, I feel like in these conversations, I see the harbinger of the future of our profession. Uh, There are the most vulnerable who are experiencing those challenges now, but um, I see many of these challenges uh, coming, uh, coming toward us. And um, unfortunately, and there's not a kind of a magic mark on a Mylar drawing or uh, AutoCAD line that we can make that will change those conditions. So I I feel like the skill sets that we will need in the coming decades are empathy, political will, uh, the ability to communicate difficult choices uh, and uh, to help, you know, be partners in what is going to be a very fraught decision-making process um, where we have to advocate for the non-human, advocate for the 
society's most vulnerable um, during this during this process. It's clear in the context of a climate crisis that's already evident. If you just pick up the paper any day of the week and see what's going on, it's um, you know in every. American city already, as you say, um, I'm struck by the the note of optimism, that, that notion that design is still relevant, even though it is asymmetrical with the scale of greenhouse gases and the amount of climate change that's already in the mail. And yet uh, we need designers like yourself and your colleagues at SCAPE more than ever, I would argue, in response to these challenges as they unfold. Kador, thanks so very much for joining us. Thanks, Charles. You've been listening to Future of the American City, curated by the Office for Urbanization at the Harvard Graduate School of Design. This conversation was supported by the Knight Foundation and the generous donors to the American Cities Fund. To learn more, visit votac.gsd.harvard.edu.